pray with me. Lord God, take my words this morning and speak through them. Take our hearts this morning and speak to them. Holy Spirit, bring conviction to our hearts through the living word and initiate healing and transformation in our lives, all for the glory of your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your own Bibles, find Ephesians in the New Testament. Chapter 5, if you have a pew Bible, you all have a pew Bible close to you that you can grab. Page 978. Now, have you ever heard the saying about the third rail of a train system? It's usually spoken in the context of don't touch. Whatever you do, don't touch that third rail. Back in the mid-80s, Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House. And he said the third rail of politics is Social Security. I heard somebody say it. The point is, the third rail is the one carrying all the power. And touching that third rail can electrocute you. It can injure you. It can potentially kill you. This morning, our scriptures present us with what will seem to some people as a third rail for preachers. Ephesians 5, verse 22. (laughs) Preachers, beware. Touch the scripture in your sermons and you may not survive. Now some of you are thinking, what's Bill doing? Is he actually going to preach on this? Some may be excited. Some of you may be bracing yourselves. But we're going to address Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to have four points in my sermon this morning. First point will be context, then change, then walking, and finally submission. In our Anglican tradition, we hold Scripture to be the living and active Word of God. And we hold 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to be truth, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is useful for God's people. Now, that doesn't mean that all Scripture will be easy to understand, nor does it mean that it will be easy to accept or easy to implement. Jesus was recorded in our Gospel reading instructing his disciples, and also recorded were their comments among themselves. And in John chapter 6, verse 60, We read, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, the Greek word there, hard, this is a hard saying. Well, referring to people, they would be stern or harsh. But of things or situations, they would be rough or offensive or intolerable. The disciples say, this is an intolerable, offensive saying. Who can hear it? Who can understand it? Who can comprehend it? It's beyond us. Now, we discussed in each of the last two weeks portions of that hard saying. Jesus' teaching about himself as the bread of life who's come down from heaven. The bread that alone leads to eternal life. In our reading this morning, Jesus' hard saying causes many of his disciples to abandon and walk away from him. These weren't just the crowds. It says some of his disciples who were grumbling then walked away. 
Jesus makes it clear in our gospel passage, verse 63 of John chapter 6, where he says, The Spirit gives life, the flesh is no help. Jesus makes it clear. Apart from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, there will be no understanding. Ephesians 5 contains yet another hard saying, this time from the teaching of Paul to the followers of Jesus in first century Ephesus. So our first point is context. What do I always say about scripture and context? Context is king. It's supreme. It's important. It must be considered. Context is crucial to a proper understanding of all scriptures, especially this portion of Ephesians 5. Now, Ephesians was written to the church, followers of Jesus. The first three chapters focused on what Christians should believe. Their faith, the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ. So first three chapters, what they should believe. The last three chapters were on how they should live. They explained the implications of salvation in Jesus Christ for the church. For individuals and families. For life in the church and life Outside the church. Now, Paul's transition from what Christians should believe in the first three chapters to how they should live occurs in the first verse of chapter four. If your Bibles are open, turn one page back. Ephesians four, verse one. Paul says, I therefore. So therefore, because of everything else that was said about what you should believe, I, Paul, urge you. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I am a prisoner of Christ and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's how you are to live, he says. Live a life worthy. Well, what, what is this life? If you believe in Jesus, if you've received forgiveness of sin and new life in his name, then what does it look like? And he continues in verse 2 there. With all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. This is living carefully. This is living deliberately. Paul makes it clear as followers of Jesus who have believed and who are now a part of his kingdom and his mission on earth, men and women are to live a certain way. They aren't to continue in their old lifestyle before they knew Jesus. They're to live differently from the culture around them. Now, we will continue to examine context, but we now come to our second point, change. According to Paul, we are to be changed if we put our faith and believe in Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 13 makes it clear that you are to be growing and maturing in knowledge and in faith into mature manhood, it says. Verse 14, you're to be no longer children, but maturing into full-grown adults in faith. Verse 22 of chapter 4, you are to put off your old self, your old way of living, and verse 23, be renewed in your minds. You're hearing the change there. Verse 24, you're to, put, you're to put on your new self, created after the likeness of God. In faith, you are to be changed. Belief in Jesus 
is to bring change in you. Now we come to chapter 5. And Paul returns to the imagery of walking. Verse 4, begin with, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been called. In chapter 5, verse 2, Paul writes, well, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In chapter 5, verse 8, he tells the church, you are to walk as children of the light. What's the opposite of light? Darkness. You're to walk and live differently than you did in the world before you had the light of Christ. This brings us from our second point, change, to our third point, walking. Last week we addressed the scripture from Verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. For the days are evil. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And in verse 18, Paul gives instruction on how to walk and live carefully with wisdom. He says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with with the Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then comes verses 19 to 21. This is what Paul declares will happen if, the, if God's people are full of his Holy Spirit. It says they will worship together in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, going on to say, singing to the Lord with all your heart. In verse 20, they will give thanks to God always for everything in the name of Jesus. And then verse 21, which began our reading this morning. They will be submitting, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you believe in Jesus, Paul is writing, you are expected to change and mature, to walk in a new way of life, to live carefully and deliberately with God's wisdom, and you are to be filled with his Holy Spirit. And in that state, you will be able to mutually submit to one another in the body of Christ out of reverence for Christ. And this brings us to our final point, submission. Now, this is impossible without Jesus. Apart from growing and maturing to greater depths of faith, apart from living differently than your pre-faith life, apart from being filled with his Holy Spirit, it's impossible. It will be impossible to mutually submit to other brothers and sisters in the church without Christ at the center, without personal transformation, his changing you, without what Paul described as humility, gentleness, and patience, and his infilling Holy Spirit. And all of that is the context for verse 22. Paul declares how God's people are to function with each other in the church, and then he shifts in verse 22 to turn his attention to life outside the church. He begins addressing marriage relationships in the home and parental relationships in the home, and then to master and slave relationships in the home and in the marketplace. And it's within that context of transforming faith of submission to Jesus, of mutual submission to each other within the body of Christ. It's there we encounter verse 22. Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. If one were to separate verse 22 from its context, it easily becomes a proof text for domineering, for indentured servitude, for unbiblical, ungodly behavior. But in its God-given context, verses 22 through 33 are a beautiful picture of God's relationship with his New Testament people, the church, through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we hear that in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5, where Paul says, Therefore, summarizing about husband and wife, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And it's now to that mystery that we turn our attention. Verse 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your husband, your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he himself is a savior. So those two verses begin with instruction for the wife, but then they say something very important about the husband. They say, wives, submit to your own husbands, but then they talk. Paul talks about the husband. Husbands, in the same way that Jesus is head of the church and savior of the church, in that way is the Christian husband instructed to be leader in his household. Then verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In the same way that God's people, the church, submit to Jesus Christ, in that way, Christian wives are instructed to submit to their Christian husbands. Now, let me ask you this. Is there any place in Scripture where Jesus Christ is presented as a dictator, narcissistic, harshly controlling his people? No. You were much quicker to answer that than the earlier service. They agreed with me, but they didn't want to say anything. No, of course not. Jesus is the model. Christ is the model. And Jesus models what Paul describes. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Jesus models steadfast love. He models forgiveness and turning the other cheek. He models giving himself up for the church. That is the context of this biblical submission. First, mutual submission among believers. The body of Christ. And then submission in the marriage relationship. Now, submission described here between wives and husbands should not be understood to be passive, but it's participatory. It's not doormat submission, but it's a choice, a willful submission by a wife to a Christ-following husband. And a willful submission of both husband and wife to the Lord and his ways. We know this because of context. 
Because after these three verses of instruction to wives, we encounter nine verses directed at the husbands. And I'm going to first read verse 25. Husbands, dominate your wives as Christ ruled over the church and subordinated her. That's not what it says. I had to say that fast, just in case someone tries to splice that out of my audio recording and say I didn't say something, or I said something I didn't. That's not what it says. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at how this passage treats the subject of the husband's love. Using imagery of Christ loving his body, the church. Listen to the imagery that the husband should apply to his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Here's what I hear there. Wives are to be, verse 25, loved and rescued through sacrifice. Verse 26, sanctified, cleansed, washed, presented in splendor and perfection, nourished and cherished from verse 29. If a wife is loved that way, if she is nurtured and presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle, do you think it will be difficult for her to choose to submit in everything to that kind of husband. I want you to remember the foundation for submission in marriage is first the mutual submission from verse 22. A relationship marked by gentleness, patience, not demanding, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. This is not my way or the highway. The wife is to be presented without spot or blemish, perfect, pure, not to be presented, neglected, domineered, subjugated, or controlled. That's not the way. As Christ loved, nurtured, cherished, and gave himself for his church. In that way, husbands, you are to love your wives which will yield wives radiating splendor, God's love, and his peace. And it's only possible where both members of the marriage are walking in God's ways, filled with his Holy Spirit, mutually submitted to Christ, mutually submitted to each other. But wait a second, you may be thinking, what about when one member in a relationship sins or errs or is harsh or is selfish? Well, that's inevitable, first of all. And that's where we need God's presence, grace, and mercy in us so that we won't respond out of our flesh 
but respond empowered by his Holy Spirit. That his grace and mercy might be in us and flow through us. Whether it be a relationship within the body of Christ or a relationship in a marriage. At the first service, Kim was sitting in the front row and I asked, Do I ever fail to live up to Christ's example for husbands? It was a resounding yes. That was the answer. Of course I do. And in those challenging situations of hurt and wounding and neglect, that person has a choice to hold on to hurt, resentment, and anger. It's the way of flesh. Or to follow Christ's example of forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's the hard way. This is a hard saying. A hard teaching. And it resoundingly demonstrates why to follow this way of life, you will need a community of faith around you to help you live it out. On your own, you will be helpless. You need others who can know you and be known by you. Who can talk you off the cliff, whether you're the one who's injured someone else and can't see your own way, or whether you're the one who's injured and wants to dismiss the other person. That can help you grow in faith and grow in love for each other. Again, this applies to mutual submission in the body of Christ or in a marriage. Help you grow in your ability to love, forgive, and cherish each other, both in community and in marriage. Now, what does this mean for marriages between a believer and a non-believer, where there's no mutual submission to Christ? Nor is there mutual submission to each other necessarily. Well, when one member of a marriage does not care about Christ's example of love, nor Scripture's example of mutual submission, that marriage will be very challenging. What marriage isn't? Every marriage is challenging. But it will be even more so if the other member disregards Christ's teaching, teaching, or if the marriage is narcissistic, or if the other partner is narcissistic or harsh. And that's an even stronger example for the need for community. Because in any marriage, we need the support of the body of Christ around us. Especially if you are a sole believer in a marriage with a non-believer, you will need the support and encouragement to live Christ's example. As he can empower you to do so. Now, what does this mean for singles? And when I say singles, sometimes you think of um, those that are between 18 and 20 who've never been married. I want to expand what singles means. Singles means anyone who hasn't been married. Singles means widows or widowers. Means divorced singles who are parents of grown children, who are divorced singles, parents of small children. What does it mean for them, those that aren't married? Well, for that answer, I refer you back to Ephesians 5.21. Where we were instructed to live lives mutually submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ. Godly marriages will not be isolated, but will be engaged in Christian community. Godly marriages will be mutually submitted to each other and to their faith community. They will be welcoming, nurturing, caring for, and including the rest of the community in their lives. 
And in that way, godly marriages will be tools and instruments of God's grace and mercy and love to those who are not married, to those who are wounded, to those who feel isolated and alone. As they're loved and included in the community life, as we all seek together to submit to our Lord and to one another. Is this a hard teaching? Yes. Is this easy to do within a marriage or within a congregation of redeemed sinners who are still broken, still continuing to sin against God, who each carry wounds, baggage, old habits, fleshly sinful desires? Is this easy to do? No. Does the difficulty in this instruction mean that we can just set it aside? Well, now I'm meddling. This is a hard teaching. And as a follower of Jesus, you have the privilege to engage with it. And this is where you have a choice. Will you perhaps not believe in Jesus at all or believe in Jesus, but just I'm I'm not going to change. I'm just going to stay the way I am. You have a choice to stay the way you are. Or will you submit to to the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting your will and all that you are to him, inviting him to change and transform you? Will you invite his Holy Spirit to fill you and lead you as you walk? As you walk in community with other followers of Jesus. As he brings you to a greater depth of faith. As you worship the Lord with your faith community. And as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Daily we have a choice to make. And Jesus, I ask you will empower your people to choose to lean into this teaching of mutual submission. All for the glory of your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.